You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Let me invite you to turn to 2 Samuel 15 and chapter 16. 2 Samuel 15 and chapter 16. We've been working through 1st and 2nd Samuel for most of this year, and we are going to pick back up where we left off in 2nd Samuel 15, verse 1. Now, the darkest day in history began in Jerusalem. After Jesus had kept the Passover meal with his disciples in that upper room, Jesus left late into the evening, probably early morning. He left the city walls of Jerusalem. He crossed over the brook Kidron on the east side of the city, and he ascended up the Mount of Olives to a garden called Gethsemane. And by the end of that day, Jesus would be dead. Now, each gospel writer recounts that journey, that heavy, sorrowful journey out of Jerusalem where Jesus' disciple and betrayer Judas would lead the authorities to arrest Jesus in that garden. And the gospel writers in their gospel stress the geography of Jesus' exit from Jerusalem, and they do so with such intensity and clarity because it parallels David's flight from Jerusalem after Absalom's betrayal. King David fled Jerusalem with tears and with sorrow as his son Absalom claimed the throne for himself and as he would soon return to Jerusalem to commit patricide and to eliminate his father and his rival. So Jesus fled in a similar way, with tears and sorrows as the religious leaders conspired to kill her Messiah, seeing Jesus as a rival to their own authority. Jesus, who heralded the coming of the kingdom of God, Jesus, who would be condemned as a criminal and executed upon the cross, on that dark day, the king of kings was humiliated and shamed in his death. But David and Jesus follow a similar and sorrowful journey out of Jerusalem. As we pick up in 2 Samuel, we know that David has sinned. It's a key turning point in the book of 2 Samuel. Because of his adultery and because of his murder, the Lord announced upon David that there would be consequences for his sin. The sword would not depart from his own house and that David would be publicly shamed for his secret sin. And David repented by God's grace. He was broken over his sin once confronted by the prophet Nathan. But And God's unbreakable promise would be preserved even with David's monumental failure. But there are consequences that David must experience. David's humiliation is coming, just as God predicted that it would. And so David's exile, exiled and recently restored son, Absalom, will be the one who will conspire against his father and who will lead a rebellion, forcing David out of Jerusalem. And as David is forced to get out, his suffering and his shame are all an act of God's judgment upon him for his sin. 
But as the Lord judges his king, it's important to keep in mind that the Lord will also vindicate his king and he will restore the kingdom once again to David. But let's begin in 2 Samuel 15 as we see David's son Absalom begin to craft his scheme of treason. Let's pick it up in 2 Samuel 15 verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. Whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now politics is a dirty game, isn't it? And Absalom played it among the best. After publicly reconciling with his father, Absalom begins to get to work to steal the hearts. With this plot, he's going to steal the hearts of Israel for himself. And we've already talked about last chapter that Absalom was a beloved prince. And now that he was restored to his father's good graces, at least in the public eye, and now as well as the eldest living son of David, perhaps he was next in line for the throne. But Absalom's lust for power began to grow. The cancer of bitterness that had been festering in his heart ever since the rape of his sister Tamar now metastasizes into outright rebellion against his father. And after the events of the last few years, Absalom has come to believe that he could do a better job as king than his father David. But David was quite the king to overthrow was legendary in Israel. This is David, the the giant slayer, the crusher of the Philistines. How could he, Absalom, overthrow such a legendary king? The prince employs a few sly political tactics. First, he begins to accumulate power. He gets power for himself. Notice what the text says at the start of the chapter, that he got himself horses and chariots. That should raise some flags for you in your mind if you're familiar with Deuteronomy. The law warned Israel's king against gathering equestrian fighting power. That was something a king was not to do. You don't trust in horses, you trust in the Lord. But Absalom not only begins to gather horses, he also embraced this new technology called chariots that the nations were using. He's showcasing his strength. He's putting on a show. He's flexing his accumulated military power, just like the king of all the nations. It's interesting that David would write in chapter 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It becomes immediately apparent at the start of the chapter just where Absalom places his trust. But secondly, Absalom begins to agitate tensions that were already latent within the kingdom of Israel. Absalom had this routine every day. He would wake up early, 
would go to the gate of the city of Jerusalem, and he would start subtly instigating conflict among those traveling into town who were coming to David to execute a case of judgment. And Absalom seems to be manufacturing a false narrative of David's partiality, exacerbating that are already tenuous relationships between the tribe of Judah and the rest of the tribes of Israel. So he would probably, this seemed to be what he was doing here at the gate, he would probably send those from the tribe of Judah right on in to see the king. Oh, yeah, you're from Judah. Sure, David will hear your case. But then somebody else would come, and he said, oh, you're from Benjamin. You're not from Judah. Okay, sorry, the, the king doesn't have any time to see you. I mean, you've got a very important case. Don't get me wrong. It sounds very important, so important that it ought to be heard by the king. But David's government, they don't have anybody assigned to see you today. And oh, but if I were the judge, if I had the opportunity to hear your case, I would try your case, and I would make sure that you got the justice that you need. That's how sly and subtle that he is. And it's with this sort of manipulation that Absalom begins to subvert his father's authority, damage the king's reputation, and earn favor with leaders of the other tribes of Israel. He is a man who is intentionally sowing division in God's kingdom. He twists the truth in order to impress others. He casts down the king in order to exalt himself. And so he begins to put a fracture. He begins to create added tension between the tribes of Israel and David, the king of Judah and the king of all the nations. But third, there's something else he does here as he begins to plot his treason. He manipulates the people by presenting himself as a man of the people. Absalom was a populist. He conned the ordinary Israelites and he agitated Israel's desire to see a revolution with what he assessed as an incompetent government. Absalom presented himself as the champion of the people. I'm one of you guys. I'm out here by the gates. David's in his house. Whenever the people came to give homage to him as the prince of Israel, notice what the text says he would do. He would pull them up by the hand and he would kiss them as an equal. You don't bow down to me. I'm one of you guys. But Absalom, we know, didn't love the people. He's exploiting the people, isn't he? Using them as pawns to win his political chess match to come into power. Absalom employs the same sort of political tactics that many use today, manipulating the masses as a way to seize power. Christian, be careful of being duped by such tactics. And we know Absalom is scheming here because the text tells us that he stole the hearts of the men of Israel, meaning he's doing it dishonestly. And so through deception, Absalom gets to the point eventually where he believes that he's, his con has worked long enough, he's garnered enough support, well, now's the time to spring the rebellion and to put his plan in place to seize power. Let's read how he does that, starting in verse 7. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron, for your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur and Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, 
As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, Gilah. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. In verse 7, there's a minor textual issue with the difference between the Hebrew text, which says 40 years, and the Greek text, which says four years, which is as the ESV translates it here. So here's my hypothesis, what I think is going on with that particular verse. I think Hebrew, the Hebrew reading of 40 years is the original. But the 40 years applies to the year of David's reign, meaning that the rebellion of Absalom occurred in the final year of David's reign because David reigned for a total of 40 years. The Greek translators, thinking that the number refers to the time of Absalom's political work at the gate and the rebellion, suspected that 40 was a scribal error, so it must have been four, and they switched it out many years ago. But either way, I think these events here are happening towards the very end of David's life and his reign as king. And as Absalom springs his plan, he again uses his father as a political pawn to accomplish his sinister scheme. David's been manipulated over and over again the last few chapters. His passivity here astounds us. He did the same when he manipulated David, if you remember, to authorize the circumstances by which Absalom could kill his brother Amnon. And the sinister Absalom uses spiritual pretense to get David to agree with his plan. Isn't that astounding? He tells his dad, Dad, I want to go back to Hebron to pay a vow to the Lord, to worship the Lord for bringing me back to Jerusalem and uniting me again with you. Absalom should be a reminder to Christians that skilled politicians will use their so-called faith to secure votes. Absalom does the same sort of thing. We know that Absalom had no concern for the Lord. (laughs) He had no desire to worship the Lord. It's all a facade. It's a farce in order for him to come into political power. But David grants Absalom's authorization to go to Hebron. Now, why does Absalom go to this particular town? Why does he go to Hebron? It's actually a very strategic move for him to do such a thing. Hebron was where David was first crowned king over Judah. And it was also the place where Absalom was born. So Hebron is the perfect place for Absalom to announce his kingdom, his kingship, and to begin the rebellion. And so with the king's permission, Absalom sends then a secret message to his supporters that he'd been manipulating over the last few years all throughout Israel. And in addition, Absalom makes the strategic choice of taking with him 200 of the most well-respected men of Jerusalem and invites them as guests for the ceremony at Hebron. These 200 men of Absalom, we're told, were unaware of his true motives They think they're just going to worship the Lord in the city with the king's son. But here are 200 of the most influential men in all the city of Jerusalem. They're present, and just simply by them being out of town and in Hebron, it will appear as if they've thrown their lot in with Absalom and have rejected David as king. So as Absalom's supporters all around Israel begin to spread the the fake news, right, the false narrative, Absalom's kingship 
seems well-supported and secure. There was no fact-checkers to go and check. It took a while for messages to get across. So we see in verse 12 that one of David's most loyal advisors, Ahithophel, joins Absalom's rebellion. And this will be a devastating blow to David, as we'll see later on. So Absalom's scheming, his manipulation, his deceit, in order to proclaim his self-king, shows what is the sinister side of politics. And praise God for the honest politicians with clear arguments, with integrity, with virtue. May the Lord add to their number. But Absalom illustrates the danger for anyone who pursues power at all costs. Absalom is losing his soul in order to gain the world. Chances are, you may not be putting in your name for the next presidential election in our country. Probably not. Maybe you should, but you're not. But you don't have to be a politician to be allured by power and control, do you? Because if your idol is power and control, what will happen is you will compromise your integrity, you will lie, you will steal, you will cheat, you will attack anyone in your way. That's the pattern. And you can lust for power in your workplace, ruthlessly manipulating your boss and coworkers so that you can ruthlessly ascend the corporate ladder. Or you can lust for power even in the church, can't you? Gossiping and sowing division to exert your will and your desires upon the church as a mean to control what the church does. Or you can lust for power in your family, making others subservient to your whims through bullying, bribery, and manipulation. You see, the lust for power cascades into a torrent of sinful, manipulating, and controlling behavior. Absalom adopts the world's values of greatness, doesn't he? Power, control, authority, position. That's not the way Jesus' kingdom works, is it? Greatness, Jesus says, doesn't come by position and power and prestige, but it comes through service. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples who were arguing for position, arguing who was the greatest? He says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In your relationships with those around you, Do you operate under the ethics of Absalom's kingdom or the ethics of Jesus's kingdom? Do you see other people in your life as pawns and tools to be used for your own self-promotion and self-exaltation? Or do you see yourself, as Christ saw himself, as a slave to others and servant to all? If you live according to the uh, the ethics of Absalom's kingdom, and many people do, be warned. Those who live according to the principles of Absalom will meet Absalom's end, and it will not be pretty. You may be exalted for a moment. You might get the power and the control that you long for, but take heart, the Lord's judgment will swiftly come. It is only a matter of time before the king of all the earth cuts you down. But as David hears what's taking place in Hebron, he decides that the only option he has is to go into hiding, to go into safety. The safety of his household is at stake. Let's read David's response starting in verse 13. 
and a messenger came to David. The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left king concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. Imagine David's reaction when he heard the news of the messenger's report. The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. I'm sure his heart sank when he heard the news because from David's vantage point, the kingdom is lost. It now belongs to Absalom. And, And though the 200 men of nobility did not know Absalom's plan, David assumes that these influential men have all abandoned him and they've now moved their loyalty to Absalom. With reports of the other tribes also supporting Absalom, with the fake news spreading around, David concludes that there's no other option for him but to get out of Jerusalem and get on the run before Absalom gets back in town and orders his execution. Because he knows that if I'm still there, when Absalom shows back up home with all these people supporting him, I'm as good as dead. He knows his son will order his execution. And David, now as a very old man, is on the run again, again. A new Saul has emerged from within his own household, threatening his life. And so the king plans to make a quick escape out of Jerusalem. Now, strangely, David leaves behind his 10 concubines to keep his house. Perhaps he didn't expect to be out of town too long. We're not sure why his decision, but whatever his reasons, he left those women exposed to Absalom's terror And as we will see soon, Absalom publicly shames his father before all of Israel. But as David exits Jerusalem, what happens next is we get five encounters with five individuals. And each meeting provides an added layer of commentary, not only about Absalom's rebellion, but about David and his exile. And the first conversation we come across as David exits the city is with Ittai, the Gittite, Let's read about him, starting in verse 18. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday. And shall I today make you wander about with us since I go, uh, I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you. And may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai, the Gittite, passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him, and all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. Now the Cherethites and the Pelethites were David's bodyguards, his personal guard, if you will. 
But after a recent armament from Gath had arrived just the day prior in Jerusalem, led by a guy named Ittai the Gittite. Now, you might remember, if you've studied and been with us through the series in Samuel, that Gath was one of the major Philistine cities. It was the home of the slave champion Goliath, whom David killed as a boy. And in David's desperate hour, the Gittites, those from Gath, it's surprising to us to see the Gentiles show loyalty to David in his time of need. When all of Israel seems to be turning their hearts towards Absalom, it is the Philistines who pledge to loyally follow David wherever it is he goes. As Naomi had the Moabite Ruth, David has Ittai the Gittite. And we get repeated glimpses of this all throughout the Old Testament of God's plan and purposes to save the Gentiles in Israel's history. Similarly, as Jesus, as David's son, comes into the world, the apostle John tells us at the start of his gospel that his own people did not receive him. And as the early church spreads the gospel message, the Messiah of the Jews was largely rejected by the Jews, only to find an eager audience among the Gentiles who were eagerly willing to confess Jesus as Lord. In the early years of the church, it shocked the apostles to discover that the salvation of Jesus that he brings is not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And yet as David is rejected by his own people, he finds among these Philistines a surprising and shocking loyalty and devotion. And so David crosses the Kidron Brook east of Jerusalem, right before you get to the base of the Mount of Olives. And in here, David has a second encounter with Abiathar and Zadok, David's two chief priests concerning the Ark of the Covenant. Let's read about this in verse 24. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. So as, as David is exiting Jerusalem, the priests in Jerusalem, Jerusalem assume that David is going to take with him the ark of the covenant. So they start getting it ready for transport. Ark goes with the king. And so Abiathar and Zadok meet David outside the gates with the Ark of the Covenant, ready to go. But David instructs the priests to take the Ark and put it back into the city. Unlike past events we've seen in Samuel in Israel's history, David will not use the Ark as a totem of divine blessing. David recognizes here in the text that the Lord does not need David. It's the other way around. The Lord can take care of himself just fine in Jerusalem, even amidst the rebellion. In addition, David acknowledges here that what's happening to him in his exile is a result of the judgment of God for his sins. If it is the Lord's will for David to return back to the city, 
then David will return. David, in faith here, rests his future in the hands of God, who will do to David what seems good to him. But David sends Zadok and Abiathar back to Jerusalem with the ark. And should they need to get in contact or share information with David, these two brothers are trusted inside informants, and they will be protected not only as priests, but Zadok is a seer, meaning a prophet. So he's got protection against Absalom. And so these priests, loyal to David, can relay messages to the king in exile should they need to do so. Now, David has now exited out of the walls of Jerusalem. He's crossed the Kidron Brook, and now he is ascending up the Mount of Olives. And it is here that the weeping king has his third encounter with Hushai. Let's read about this one, starting in verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, Oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshiped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar, the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son, and by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. So with bare feet and head covered, here's the image of God's king weeping, ascending the Mount of Olives. But again, such a picture prefigures the sorrow of the Lord Jesus Christ praying in Gethsemane at the base of that same mountain. And it is here in grief that David learns of a sting of betrayal. Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom, one of David's most loyal and trusted and long-serving advisors is backing Absalom's claim to the throne. Ahithophel is David's Judas. And so in mourning and lament, David prays to the Lord and he asked the Lord that he would turn Ahithophel's counsel and he would turn it into foolishness. And the Lord actually brought very quick answer to that prayer because David on that mountain met Hushai on the mountain, sharing in David's mourning with his coat torn and dirt on his head. Hushai was another trusted advisor of David. He's frequently called in scripture, David's friend. And it's Hushai who becomes David's agent, working in Jerusalem, having Absalom's ear to subvert the counsel of Ahithophel. And so David sends his friend back to Jerusalem, working as his agent, along with the priest. And Hushai will prove essential as the man who will defeat the counsel of Ahithophel and who will protect David from Absalom's scheming, and who will ultimately cause the downfall of Absalom's rebellion. 
So Hushai gets back to Jerusalem right before Absalom returns home, where he's strategically placed to overturn this rebellion. Now, David's fourth and fifth encounters here are with those associated with the house of Saul. The fourth encounter is with Ziba, who reports some distressing news about Mephibosheth. Now, remember, in 2 Samuel 9, David gave Saul's estate, managed by Ziba, to Mephibosheth, Jonathan's crippled son. And David honors his friendship and his promise to Jonathan by lavishing Mephibosheth with kindness and with generosity. He treats Mephibosheth like his own son. They eat dinner together every night. But Ziba reports of Mephibosheth's betrayal. Let's read about this in verse 1 of chapter 16. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, and 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. So while David begins to pass over the Mount of Olives, he learns of another betrayal. Ziba approaches with some supplies for David and his family on the run, and David seems a little bit surprised that it's Ziba who is out here making the delivery without Mephibosheth. Why have you brought these, David said. And as David inquires about Mephibosheth's absence, Ziba gives a suspicious report that we'll find out will later be false in chapter 20, and Ziba says that Mephibosheth now sees David's exile as an opportunity for him to reclaim the throne for Saul's dynasty. Now, David believes Ziba's report here and gives Ziba all that once belonged to Mephibosheth now back to Ziba. So it seems that Ziba here is the man who is playing both sides in order to ensure his own protection. And of course, he's working things for his own advantage. But the conversation, though, does begin to expose that there is some latent hostility from Saul's household about David, which becomes increasingly apparent with the last conversation that David has on his way out of the city with Shimei as he derides and curses David as he flees the city. Let's read about this in verse 5. When King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? 
Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. In this fifth encounter, David experiences the cursing of Shimei, a man from the family of Saul. And the man begins to curse David and throw rocks at David and his whole party, his whole family, his whole children, as they go out into exile. And Shimei pronounces judgment on David. He sees his departure from Jerusalem. David's getting his due. The Lord is getting his vengeance on David for what he did to Saul and his house. And though the author of Samuel has gone to great lengths to show us and to preserve David's innocence in ascending to the throne, others like Shimei disagree. And now as David exits, Shimei sees Absalom's rebellion as the Lord's vengeance upon David as a man of blood, a man of blood. And he calls David a worthless man, a man of Belial, the term that we've heard repeatedly in Samuel used most re- most memorably, perhaps, with Eli's own sons. And as we hear Shimei's cursing, we know that this is a man who's speaking lies. But his words, though, have elements of truth to them, don't they? David's exile is God's judgment on him as a man of blood. Though the blood that David spilled was not the house of Saul, but the husband of Bathsheba. David is experiencing the consequences of his sin that the Lord promised to bring that the sword would not depart from his house. Absalom's rebellion is God's judgment on David for his sin. But as Abishai, Joab's brother, hears Shimei's cursing, he urges David to go ahead and authorize the execution of this dead dog who curses the king. As we've seen in Samuel, these sons of Zariah, Joab and Abishai, these were men eager to pick up the sword and start killing people. But if the Lord commanded, and this is what David's response is, David says, Abishai, keep your sword in its sheath because if the Lord commanded this man to curse David, who is he then to stop it? And though David is sorrowful in his rejection, he's mourning, he's being humiliated, he trusts in the will of the Lord for his humiliation. If his exile is the consequence of his own sin, then who is he to thwart the will of God? And so David says to his servants, Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him so. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing. And so David travels with the cursing of Shimei in his ears with stones and dust being flung at him until David and his people arrive to the Jordan for refreshment. As you picked up on, I hope along the way, We've seen strong geographical parallels between David's exile out of Jerusalem and Jesus' final night before his crucifixion. David and Jesus follow similar journeys of grief and sorrow as Israel rejects them. 
And as David exits Jerusalem, each conversation of the five that we've had along the way teaches us. As David speaks to Ittite the Gittite, we see the surprising loyalty of the Gentiles to the rejected Jewish king, foreshadowing how God's promise of salvation would go to the Gentiles. As David speaks to the priests, Abiathar and Zadok, we see the willingness of the Lord's anointed to trust in the sovereignty of God for his vindication and restoration. Even in his, resurrect, uh, his rejection, David exhibits trust and confidence in the Lord. As David speaks to Hushai, we see the Lord answer the king's prayer almost immediately for deliverance by providing the man who would undo Absalom's kingdom. As David speaks to Ziba, we see yet again the pain he experiences of betrayal as Mephibosheth seemingly turns his back on the king. And as David encounters the cursing of Shimei, he experiences the mocking and jeering of his enemies, deriding him and his shame and weakness, and yet David endures it. He doesn't retaliate. Just as the Son of God does at the cross, he opens not his mouth. And as David made his journey of suffering, so too will David's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, make a journey, crossing the Kidron, ascending the Mount of Olives, and sweating drops of blood, praying at Gethsemane, only to be met by his betrayer, to be met by his abandoning, running away disciples, and arrested and tried by Jewish authorities. While David had in his household a few key allies, Jesus had no one. His own disciple betrayed him. All his remaining friends scattered and abandoned him. Peter denied him. Indeed, there was no man of sorrows, no man of loneliness like the Lord Jesus Christ on that dark and horrific day of his arrest and crucifixion. And don't we do the same sort of thing to Jesus? How quickly do we abandon our loyalty to Christ when a coworker challenges us? Or how quickly do we distance ourselves from Jesus when following him means putting our lives at risk? Or how quickly do we abandon Jesus only to serve the authority of an idol? And yet, though we frequently forsake him, the Lord Jesus never forsakes us. He is steadfast in his loyalty. He is persevering in his affection for us. And he embraces our rejection and our judgment as he goes to the cross in our place. Because Jesus, like David, was the rejected king. And so many continue to reject Jesus to this day. But while David's rejection was due to his own sin, Jesus' rejection was for David's sin. Not just David's sin, but for all our sin. Jesus did not deserve to be rejected. He had no sins by which he earned consequences. The rocks that pelted David, the curses that pierced his ears, all of it deserved. All of it he deserved. In fact, he deserves far worse. David was a fallen king. He was an adulterer and murderer. And though he repented, the Lord kept his promise not to remove the kingdom, but David still must endure the consequences of his sins. But from the lineage of David, would come the innocent son of God. Jesus was without sin. He was the innocent and blameless king. He was a man truly after God's own heart. And God the Father had announced from heaven that he was well pleased with his son. And yet, Israel rejected her Messiah and crucified her king. The incarnate son of God endured the curse of the cross for our sake. 
The Lord Jesus took on our condemnation on our behalf. And on the events of that Good Friday, it would be a Gentile centurion who upon the death of Jesus would say, surely this man was the son of God. And as darkness covered the land, Jesus became the forsaken son, but yet he called out in his father in faith, awaiting his vindication. And as Judas had betrayed Jesus and all of his followers and disciples scattered, Jesus endured the cursing of the crowd, the stones of their afflictions, and the mocking of the masses. And every curse shouted at Jesus was undeserved. And yet the Lord Jesus not only endured the cursing of mockers, but he endured the curse of divine judgment for us. The Lord Jesus was the innocent sufferer who was cursed for our sake. Maybe you've been betrayed like David. Perhaps your own children have turned against you, or your closest friend works against you, or your enemies are cursing you. But like David, none of us are innocent sufferers. We may be sinned against, but we are first and foremost sinners ourselves. The only truly innocent sufferer in the history of humanity is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he underwent the suffering of the cross in order to save sinners like us. So let me urge you, no matter how discouraged you may be today, no matter how rejected that you may feel, come to Jesus. Turn from your sins. Raise your voice to the Lord in be saved from your sin and rest in the final vindication of God for all who are united to Jesus and a death like his will also be raised in a resurrection like his. David's suffering of his consequences, of his own sins, point forward to David's son who suffered the consequences for our sins. And as David goes into exile, the Lord will restore his kingdom again. And just as Jesus descended to the dead, so too did he rise again on the third day. David's words in verse 12 could very well be said of Jesus. Look at them again. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So on the third day, Jesus rose triumphantly from the grave and defeated his foes. The father vindicated his son and gave him the name that is above every name, crowning him with glory and might and honor forever. The world may reject Jesus, but he is God's chosen king. See him humiliated. See him alone. See him suffering. See him weeping. He does so for you. He does so for me. He does so in love for sinners. The suffering, outcast, and rejected Messiah is heaven's victorious and risen ruler. So I implore you today, do not reject the Lord Jesus Christ any longer. Repent of your sin today and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop playing Absalom and clamoring for power over the Lord's anointed. Humble yourself. Submit before the Lord Jesus Christ and confess him as Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, may you humble us as we look at the sufferings that you endured on the cross. Lord, in David, we see in his humiliation, his shame, the consequences of his own sin. Lord, we are reminded of how Jesus endured such consequences for us. Lord, we thank you that even though you were 
perfect and innocent and blameless. You endured our shame, our rejection, our judgment so that we could be spared from your wrath, that we might be redeemed, that we might be saved from our sins. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who's living under the ethics of Absalom's kingdom, or that they might repent of their lust for power over your king, that they might submit themselves to the risen Christ, and that they might turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus and be forgiven of all their sins. Lord, we are thankful that you endured the cross for our sake. And Lord, as we see the sufferings and the pain that you endured, our hearts are filled with joy and humble worship as we consider what Christ has done for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.